0: Pacifica Radio. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Weiner, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later today, we'll speak with Harold Meyerson about Bernie's endorsement of Joe Biden and about the reluctance of some of Bernie's supporters to join him. But first, very good news from Wisconsin. For that, we turn, of course, to John Nichols, our man in Madison He's national affairs correspondent for The Nation, and his new book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, will be out in three weeks. John, welcome back. John, it's an honor to be with you. Well, last time we talked was just after Wisconsin was forced by Republicans to hold their primary election despite the coronavirus, despite the absence of adequate vote-by-mail provisions. At that point, we didn't have any results. Things looked very grim. Now we do. The reason the Republicans insisted the primary go forward uh, was not because Bernie was challenging Biden for the Democratic nomination. Please explain why the stakes were so high for the Republicans in Wisconsin.
1: The stakes were (laughs) so high for Republicans in Wisconsin uh, because The uh, Republicans in the legislature and previously in the governor's office, when Scott Walker was there, have been obsessed with the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Their view has for a long time has been that if they have control of the state Supreme Court, uh, they can pretty much do whatever they want in the legislature and get away with it. Right. And um, they can warp the political uh, processes and the governing processes in their favor. And that's especially important as regards elections on issues like voter ID and voter purges and all sorts of other things. So they desperately wanted the courts. The courts are technically nonpartisan, but judicial races in Wisconsin uh, tend to be actually very partisan with clearly defined liberal and conservative candidates. Uh, It was the view of the Republicans in the state legislature that if they forced the April 7th election to go forward, despite the fact that every other state – uh, which has an election in this period, has either uh, delayed it or restructured their voting system so that people didn't have to vote in person. Uh, despite that fact, Republicans in Wisconsin believed if they forced the election to go forward, they could prevail. And they could elect their very right-wing candidate to the high court, uh, an appointee of former Governor Scott Walker, with a long record of being anti-labor, uh, anti-pretty-much-everything. Um, and they were very hopeful that that would work Uh, so they went to the mat they did in fact uh, challenge Governor Tony Evers at Democrats efforts to uh, delay in-person voting and to go to heavy-duty absentee and vote by mail they essentially upended that uh, going to their allies on the High Court uh, getting a ruling to block Evers then getting the US Supreme Court to upend the absentee balloting It looked like there was no way that Democrats or progressives could prevail. And yet, on April 7th, in the midst of all of this, people went to the polls. It was awful. It was terrifying. People had to make handmade masks. They stood for two and three hours. Um, In some cases, late in the day, it began to rain and then hail began to fall. And yet, the Uh. people did not leave the lines. And one other thing.
0: One yeah. other thing, how many polling places were open in the biggest Democratic stronghold of Milwaukee?
1: Oh, it was a nightmare scenario. They went from 180 polling places in a major metropolitan center down to five. And, ah. and proportionally, that wasn't even the worst. There were other places like Green Bay, which is a major city where they went down, I believe, to two. Waukesha, a city of 75,000 with a large Hispanic population, they went down to one. Um, and so there was just, it, 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 to vote, literally, if you're a working class person, um, you might have to get up, uh, before dawn, get on a bus, go across town to a polling place you've never been to, um, and then line up and wait in line for two or three hours. Or if you were working and then you did your, your work at a grocery store or as a postal worker or whatever, you might come at the end of the day. And end up waiting three hours, you know, through rain and hail. Um, And yet, amazingly enough, people did this uh, in the tens of thousands. And other people raced uh, to get absentee ballots in. The absentee ballot system was all messed up by the interventions of the courts. But people literally, um, again, left their homes, went to post offices to make sure that they could get a, a postmark on it. So it, it met the time limits, and that was actually a very challenging thing for a lot of folks. They got in more than a million absentee ballots. They registered hundreds of thousands of in-person votes, and um, the results took six days to pull together because of all the, basically, U.S. Supreme Court's mangling of the absentee balloting. Um, and uh, on Monday, they started to count the, the votes. I, I don't. And think now,
0: was, yeah. And that- and now, and now we get to the good part, the results. Yeah,
1: that is the point. I'm sorry to build up so much, but it's kind of <laughs> worth it. Um, it
0: is. <laughs> uh,
1: the results started coming in, and people were so beaten down, so scared, that they actually, you know, didn't have a lot of expectations. Uh, but, you know, people kept checking as the evening went on. They started reporting before four in the afternoon. And uh, initially, uh, the conservative court candidate, was ahead of the progressive who was challenging him. But slowly, as the votes started to come in, especially from those places that were hardest hit, like Milwaukee, like Green Bay, um, the liberal candidates' uh, numbers ticked up and up and up. And when the night was done, Jill Karofsky, the progressive candidate backed by labor and community groups, civil rights and civil liberties groups, defeated Justice Dan Kelly, the conservative candidate, by 160,000 votes, a 55-45 landslide that swept the state, literally winning not just urban areas, but also many rural areas, uh, producing a map that, that looked a little bit like Barack Obama's re-election map in 2012. And then it didn't stop there, John. John, because I know how greedy you are for good news. Um, it didn't I know. stop there. Across the state, there were school referendums on the ballot. And these were big, big school referendums because we've had some funding challenges for public education in Wisconsin. Um, When the economy turned down, the assumption was that people would be disinclined to vote to raise their taxes substantially to fund public education. And so there were real fears about the school referendums. But no, in Milwaukee, the $87 million uh, funding increase for public education passed by a four to one margin. And in Racine, a historic working class center south of Milwaukee, um, where audaciously enough, the mayor and local officials uh, wanting to stabilize public education for the long term, had asked for a $1 billion public education funding plan that would secure funding for the schools for the next 30 years. Everybody thought this is just too much to ask. It was overwhelming. It won by five votes.
0: <laughs> Incredible! It's amazing. So, so, uh, so the big question is how, how? did the Democrats do it? You know, for the people who, those of our friends who were saying Trump's going to cancel the election in November. A lot of us replied, "No, they—they're not. That's too hard to do. That's a violation of a federal law from the." 19th century it's much more effective for them to try to co- close polling places and create all of the other obstacles to voting that they've been working the Republican party has been working on for a couple of decades now Wisconsin in April was was the dream situation for Republicans almost all the polling places in democratic precincts were closed and yet they won so overwhelmingly how did they do it
1: Well, this is how they did it.
0: First off, um, they pissed off a lot of people.
1: Uh, The the Republicans did. And I can't underestimate that. Uh, Look, I I think there was an assumption on the part of the Republicans that they were creating an untenable situation in which an awfully lot of people would simply give up. And the fact of the matter is uh, people didn't give up. And the Democratic Party in Wisconsin as well as their labor and civil rights uh, allies, uh, instead of backing down, fought harder. And they used the modern era, and I think this is something way underestimated when we talk about um, politics. It's evolving rapidly. And so we communicate by social media. We can get information out much more quickly uh, than at, at sometimes in the past. And what happened in Wisconsin was as... The Republicans threw roadblock after roadblock after roadblock in the way of this process. And as the circumstance really did become more horrifying, um, there was a, a massive effort to inform people about what they could do. And there was a lot of messaging about getting a hold of your absentee ballot, getting it filed. You know, getting it you know, stamped at the right time. I even talked to the lieutenant governor of, of Wisconsin, Mandela Barnes, um, who on election day was scrambling to get to a, a post office so he could get his ballot mark, you know, postmark. Um, and so a, a tremendous number of people did this. Uh, more than a, a million absentee ballots came in. And that was a huge part of it. There was, we don't have vote by mail in the traditional sense in Wisconsin, but effectively the Democratic Party and its allies went to a vote by mail campaign. They, they ramped everything up on it, constant information about how to get your absentee ballot, litigation to try and you know make sure that, that the ballots were delivered. I, I have to give immense credit to the Postal Service. Uh, it wasn't always perfect. Some ballots didn't get there on time. Uh, there was great frustration. Uh, and there are real challenges, and yet uh, we saw example after example of postal workers going the extra mile um, to, you know, get ballots where they needed to be, uh, and and you know, letter carriers literally, you know, walking down those long roads, you know, the rural letter carriers getting out to people's houses and distant places, and then throughout our cities. And so it, it wasn't perfect; it was very flawed. In a moment, we'll talk about the flaws and the fundamental challenges. But um, what I the answer to your question is how did they do it um they just didn't give up and and then on election day for those who didn't get the absentee ballots because uh the well frankly the governor's plan which would have made it possible and functional was upended and also then the u.s supreme court came in and limited literally you know constrained the amount of time for ballots to be received you know, backed by the poll by the uh, election clerks, so that that people fell into this narrow window if they didn't get their ballot, um, they couldn't get it in. And even if they had gotten it, um, there there was a timing pressure on them. It was just a terrible mess. And so some people realized on election day morning that they were in they had fallen into this gap, and that if they didn't go in person to the polls, they would be disenfranchised. And I cannot tell you the number of people I spoke to who sewed their own masks, who literally wore winter gloves on a, on a relatively hot day, um, who made their own protective gear and went out to the polls. People who gathered along these long lines, sometimes two and three hour waits to vote, and um, the grassroots groups that were out there with hand sanitizer and with um, you know, all sorts of other, with masks and protective gear, um poll workers who did show up at the polls where it was possible to do my daughter being one of them, um, literally uh with hand sanitizers at the door and you know, literally being out in front and letting only a certain number in at a time, uh, building plexiglass shields so that folks who had to register to vote uh wouldn't be, you know, no chance of exchanging fluids or whatever. Um it, it was just an amazing uh cobbled together effort. And summed up by one woman, uh, Gretchen Fenema, uh, she's laid off from her job, living on the north side of Milwaukee. Uh, her dad has chronic bronchitis. She uh, and her dad applied for absentee ballots, but they did not arrive in time. Uh, they uh, decided they had to go for it. So they, they made masks. Um, they got in their car. They were able to do something called curbside voting. They had to wait the better part of an hour. But they finally did get to get up there and cast their vote. And they actually got an I-voted sticker. As they pulled away, Gretchen put her I-voted sticker on her mask and, and uh, took a selfie with uh, her holding up her middle finger. And uh, on her social media, her message was, F you Wisconsin Republicans.
0: Oh. Wow. Well, uh, of course we care a lot about the Supreme Court of Wisconsin, but we care even more about the White House of the United States. And everybody knows Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin are the states Trump must carry again if he's gonna be reelected. He's way behind in the polls in Pennsylvania and Michigan. Wisconsin seemed to be his best chance of carrying one of those swing states. Mm What are the implications of April in Wisconsin for November in Wisconsin?
1: Well, that's a very important question. And um, you know, we're we're telling some heartwarming stories here, and that's very encouraging. Let me pause on the, you know, the the uplift and yes. simply deliver the message that Wisconsin showed not just for Wisconsin, but for Michigan and for Pennsylvania and for North Carolina and for Minnesota and for New Hampshire and for every other battleground state across the country that our Republican associates or acquaintances um, are, in fact, willing to go to unimagined extremes in order to uh, disenfranchise people who they think might not vote the way they want them to vote. And so we can't be... uh, We can't be... uh, overly optimistic. We have to recognize this is the beginning of a struggle. And uh, we now know how far uh, these folks are willing to go. Uh, we have to be prepared for real, real fights. And um, the lesson is that we have to fight uh, for vote by mail wherever possible. Remember, a lot of that can be implemented in the states. We have to fight at the federal level passionately to save the postal service uh, because the Postal Service is absolutely critical to absentee ballots and mail voting. Um, in the next stimulus bill, progressives and Democrats have to fight with everything they've got uh, to you know, basically force the hand of the Republicans and of the, the Trump administration on funding for the Postal Service and vote by mail. Those are all fundamental. But at, your, at the core of that question, your question about Wisconsin, um, the lesson is this. Uh, There's an anger out there. There's a passion out there. Uh, And I I cannot begin to explain uh, how furious people were at what the Republicans did in Wisconsin. I think it actually (coughs) impacted turnout and impacted the energy that that went into voting around April 7th. And my message is that if Democrats uh, can speak to this, can speak to this fundamental reality that there are people who don't want you to vote, and the best way to to counter them is to figure out how to vote, to vote early, to use absentee ballots, to use vote-by-mail where possible, uh, but don't get turned back. Uh, It is, in fact, not just possible, but likely that Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and a number of these other battleground states will vote against Donald Trump in November. Uh, It will not be easy. It will be one of the epic battles in American democratic life, small D democratic life. And yet we now see that uh, that I think the Republicans have overplayed. they've They've gone so far that they've exposed themselves. And in so doing, my sense is that they have mobilized uh, an army uh, that is ready to push back.
0: November will bring one of the epic battles in American political life. John Nichols, read him at the nation.com John, it's always great to have you on the show. It's an honor to be with you, John. I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. We'll have more in a minute when Trump Watch continues. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Maybe you heard the news. Bernie endorsed Biden on Sunday. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, there has been, let us say, some should we call it skepticism on the part of Bernie supporters that Joe Biden will take up at least some of the key positions that Bernie has made central to Democratic politics. Bernie, of course, is nobody's fool. He knows all about that. What do we know about this key aspect of Bernie's endorsement?
2: Well, uh, I, I think to begin with, strategically, the Biden people understand that Bernie carried uh, the votes in the primaries that were held, not only of voters under 30, but voters under 45, which is a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, that, and that Biden needs to uh, move uh, in some serious directions uh, towards uh, that group, towards uh, Bernie backers and Elizabeth Warren backers. And she also endorsed uh, Biden on Wednesday. Uh, yesterday, Uh, and they'd already made uh, a a, a couple of moves. Uh, I think the most uh, striking actually uh, was for Biden to uh, really disavow one of his major pieces of legislation, the bankruptcy legislation he uh, supported and really almost authored uh, when he was in the Senate which Elizabeth Warren did everything she could to oppose. He uh, did a 180 on that and uh, endorsed Warren's position, which is um, much less onerous towards individual debtors. Um, He uh, uh, also uh, went along with, uh, moved towards several of the positions that both Bernie and Elizabeth had laid out, uh, for, uh, making college tuition free. Uh, he had previously, uh, said he would, it was in favor of that, uh, for two year community colleges, which actually had been a position of the Obama administration. He's now expanded that to tuition at all four year public colleges and universities. And he most notably, uh, said he would lower uh, the age of eligibility for Medicare from 65 to 60. I think one of the things that sort of missed in some of the commentary on this, noting that uh, even Hillary Clinton supported lowering the age to 50, that was lowering the age, uh, in Clinton's case, for a buy-in. You would would shell out and get Medicare. What, what uh, Biden proposed is lowering the age of eligibility for taxpayer-supported Medicare, Medicare as it currently exists, uh, to 60, which is, <clears throat> you know, uh, more than simply a buy-in. Now, you know, relative to Medicare at all, that's, uh, you know, small potatoes. And, you know, it actually, to some degree, <coughs> excuse me, it actually, to some degree, uh, helps insurance companies because Americans age 60 to 65 who are on private insurance were the most costly group of medic- of uh, private insurance clients uh, because they had more health problems yeah. than younger Americans. But, you know, th- these are all these are all moves. Now, what do we think about the prospect of Biden continuing to move? Well, A, he said he set up some task forces with some Sanders people and some Warren people, they're their policy people. <clears throat> so it's reasonable to expect more. But, you know, I think looking at this in a broad sense, uh, presidencies aren't made only by presidents. They're also made by social forces in the land. And right now, I think it's fair to say that there are more consciously social democratic forces in the land than there probably have ever been before in American history, including yeah. the 1930s, including the 1960s. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think if you envision what a Biden presidency will be like, uh, you know, most Democratic presidencies are in themselves arenas for class struggle, as it were. But we, you know, uh, I, I I think the left could approach this with more strength than it has before. And you could imagine both as a candidate and should he be elected as a president, Biden saying, yes, I'll spend more on transition to sustainable energy. Um, I will do more for worker rights. Uh, I will do more for making uh, college affordable. Um, I will do more for health care. I mean, obviously, one of the uh, lessons of the current pandemic is that when health care is uh, health coverage is attached to employment, And when 22 million Americans uh, file for unemployment in just the last four weeks, a figure that came out today, um, you know, there's room for considerable revision. So uh, a lot of, you know, a a lot of Bernie supporters still say, well, he ain't there yet. Uh, I suspect the vast majority of them are going to vote for Biden, even if he ain't there yet come November, because the alternative is Trump. But... uh, Uh, I I would expect there to be more motion and more outreach to the left for the very obvious reason that Biden needs it if he's going to win this election.
0: Well, several of Bernie's key supporters have not followed his lead, at least not yet. Let's start with our heroes, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Pramila Jayapal, co-chair of the House Progressive Caucus, uh, what is their stance? What do you make of their uh, withholding the endorsement as well, of today?
2: They, they said they will uh, that, they, that they're going to vote for you know vote vote for Biden. Uh, the question is how uh, how much will they do in terms of campaigning for him? Um, uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez has specifically said he needs to move more on the uh, uh, public assumption of health insurance. Uh, I I would say the odds of Biden reaching out to them and reaching some accommodation with them uh, are, you know, you know, very good. I don't I I can't imagine that, uh, you know, they wouldn't vote for him. I mean, even Cornel West, who uh, in in 2016 uh, rather prominently refused to uh, vote for Clinton, said he's going to vote for Biden. I think the urgency of getting rid of Donald Trump is going to eclipse other considerations. But yes, Biden has to move uh, more uh, towards the left to get the kind of support he needs uh, and the kind of uh, higher level of enthusiasm he needs to win the election.
0: And now it's time for your Minnesota Moment news from my hometown of St. Paul. Ilhan Omar has not endorsed Biden either. Is that an uh, important uh, signal to anyone outside of Minneapolis?
2: Well, she's one of two uh, uh, Muslim members of of the House, and I, I think you know she she has both of those aspects of her identity, and so it you know it's there uh, uh, along with the uh, Ocasio Cortezes and the Jayapals. Uh, yeah, I think. Uh, you know, every vote in a state like Minnesota, which Clinton only carried by under 2% of the vote in 2016, matters. And so, yes, there will be outreach there and uh, outreach of the kind uh, that would bring in a different constituency than if Biden were to uh, say that Amy Klobuchar, the centrist uh, Democrat uh, senator from Minnesota, is, is his running mate. He needs both halves of He he needs to get both halves of that equation, though I hope getting the more centrist half doesn't uh, necessitate picking Amy Klobuchar as his running mate.
0: (laughs) Well, we've been talking here about the elected leaders of the progressive movement inside the Democratic Party. Then there is the Bernie movement. These are young people. Bernie has been their for a lot of them, their entrance into political activism, they believe America needs a, a revolution, uh, and uh, they are, let us say, a lot more skeptical about Joe Biden, who they devoted their lives to defeating for the last uh, year or so. What, what's your estimate of how significant their reluctance or indeed active opposition to Joe Biden is going to be?
2: Well. You know, uh, this isn't 2016. Uh, I, I, I suspect the vast majority of them will grit their teeth and end up voting for Joe Biden, whether they do, uh, anything to actually help the campaign. Um, I mean, that's a, uh, uh th- that, that's up to two different, uh, groups. Uh, one group is Joe Biden and his supporters. Uh, and the other group is the group we're, we're talking about. Um, I, I think uh, you know the the first move here obviously has to be Biden's. And in terms of uh, uh, suggesting that uh, there be a suspension of of college debt and f- forgiveness of a chunk of that debt to a num most of the people who have incurred it is is a move specifically directed at that group's economic interest, as is his moving to say that uh, college should be tuition, public colleges and universities should be tuition free. Um, but, you know, he, he needs to do more. I would I think he specifically needs to do more on uh, uh, transition towards a greener uh, New Deal. Uh, I think, actually, the uh, economic depression uh, we are uh, entering into for how long, nobody knows, um, requ- will require, you know... Uh, a new latter day generation of the WPA of public sector employment. And as long as we're um, required to uh, build some infrastructure to dig us out of an economic hole, um, it only makes sense to build uh, green infrastructure. And so I think, um, you know, that presents a, uh, an opportunity that Biden would be foolish not to take.
0: And then there is DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. I believe you've been affiliated with this group for several years. Yeah, in
2: 1975. Um, uh, this was. Say, say uh, that
0: again. How? Say that again. How many years?
2: Uh, well, 1975 is what? 45 years. Um, I joined the predecessor organization, one of the two, the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee. Then I was a. Uh, um for about a decade i was a national honorary vice chair of dsa which entailed uh during dsa's uh rip van winkle like slumber uh hardly uh you know no no duties whatsoever uh, but um you know the organization is in an interesting state it uh it it grew tremendously uh beginning with uh Bernie Sanders declaration of candidacy in 2015 uh with the election of Donald Trump and with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's primary victory uh in uh, in 2018 uh, uh growing tenfold more or less from a membership of about 6,000 to a current membership of about 60,000. Uh, The organization at its 2019 convention passed a resolution saying the only uh, Democratic presidential candidate they were going to endorse was Bernie Sanders. They were endorsing Bernie and they wouldn't endorse anyone else. And the organization tweeted out over the last week that therefore they were not going to endorse Joe Biden. Now, I'm of two minds on this. Um mine one is that uh, this is a form of being uh, AWOL, absent without leave, in uh, a struggle against fascism. That's mind one. Mine two, which draws on my experience as a political consultant, is that I'm not at all sure a DSA endorsement of Joe Biden uh, would, would help him and might hurt him more than it would help him. Uh, and I uh, so but what I thought was a way to navigate this, was a way that the Atlanta local of DSA uh, dealt with uh, Stacey Abrams, uh, who was a progressive Democrat, uh, running for governor in Georgia in 2018. Uh, The organization in Atlanta had a position that they would only endorse socialists, but, you know, they were also had to be aware that Stacey Abrams uh, needed uh, an a, a, a formal socialist endorsement, with, you know, with the Georgia electorate, like she needed a hole in the head. So we yes. released a statement saying, <clears throat> "While for a number of reasons we can't endorse Stacey Abrams, uh, we know that this election matters hugely, and that our allies and friends are all going to be involved, and we encourage those of our members." who want to do this, to be involved with our allies and friends uh, in helping Stacey Abrams win this election. I would hope that the National Political Committee of DSA uh, would uh, release a statement like that vis-a-vis the 2020 presidential election uh, because, uh, on the one hand, it would avoid a formal endorsement, but on the other hand, It would acknowledge, you know, uh, what every uh, uh, other progressive organization and constituency uh, acknowledges, which is that this is a life and death election, A, for American democracy, and B, almost literally for a lot of Americans. So this is not something (coughs) you want to use a purist ideology, which some members of DSA have, not a lot, but some and certainly some on the National Political Committee, uh, you, you don't want to use that ideology as a way to be absent in a, in a, you know, a fundamental struggle for the future of this nation.
0: Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Great to talk to you today.
2: Great to talk to you, John.
0: That's it for today's Trump Watch. Our show is produced at KPFK in Los Angeles. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, with additional engineering from William Broughton. Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. And thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed any part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week. With more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting, I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.